means you're you're not dependent on like other things. You have your home yourself, and you carry it around, and you don't have to build it or to like yeah, like to build it or to find it or to be in a cer- certain place to be there. It's always with you. Hello and welcome to the Particular Good Podcast. I said particular good, not particularly good. It's a name, not a claim. We're coming to you from St. Bernard School of Theology and Ministry in Rochester, New York. We've also got campuses in Buffalo, Syracuse, and Albany. We offer graduate education in all these places and anywhere in the world. All of our programs can be completed online. We also offer certificate programs in Catholicism and the Fine Arts, Catholic Bioethics, and Catechetical Leadership. I'm Charles Hughes Huff, Assistant Professor of Sacred Scripture. I'm joined today by Heather Hughes Huff, Adjunct Professor of English Literature. Hello, Heather. Hello. Today we're talking about fairy tales for adults. I had this idea about fairy tales for adults and to put in several different segments for today, and Heather objected to the whole concept. Heather, could you explain why you object <laughs> so strongly? I mean, I don't. I do not object to fairy tales. I just think that several of the things that you're talking about in this segment aren't actually fairy tales. So like, is it that you don't like, did no one read Grimm's fairy tales to you as a, as a child? <laughs> the West Wing is not a fairy tale. There's no, uh, you know, supernatural. There's no sense of mystery. It's just an escape which we would call a fantasy, maybe, instead of a fairy tale. Well, what's the difference between a fantasy and a fairy tale? Fairy tale, like the fairies, um, there's a sense that there is an element of the supernatural in fairy tales. There's like a creepiness, a um, unexplained, unexplainable quality, um, right? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I so. Yeah. I mean, it's fun to, to say I, I won't you know, refuse to put my name on the episode or anything, but. <laughs> well, we have a semantic usage in modern language of like the fairy tale romance or the fairy tale wedding. True. Which, what does fairy tale mean in that case? I don't know. Princess dresses, probably. <laughs> yeah. It's a, a wonder tale, a magic tale. Um, it's a folklore genre. So. Natural, we don't mean necessarily the realm of gods, but just magic, right? Something yeah. that's magic. You know, like a fairy circle that you find in the woods. Well, very good. Well, today we're going to be talking about things that are magical. <laughs> First, we're going to start with uh, an interview with Megan Fritz talking about George MacDonald, who does write a fairy tale, a true fairy tale. That's legitimate. Legitimate. And it is a fairy tale he wrote for adults. And it's called Fantasties. And he wrote another one called Lilith. And those are two of his fairy tales written purely for adults, though most of his books, or many of his books, were for children. They're After okay. that, we're going to talk to Guy Valponi, a bioethicist in Chicago, who about West Wing. He's watching West Wing. We're watching West Wing. So we're going to talk about West Wing, which is, I consider, and Heather does not consider, to be a kind of modern fairy tale. It certainly has a lot of magical thinking in it. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Scrapes by with the technicality. <laughs> yeah. And finally, we're going to have Molly Huff, my daughter, read to us a fairy tale. Not really a fairy tale. 
It's like a, a children's fable. story. There you that go. I took great comfort in when I was applying for jobs on the job market, and it's called Turtle Finds a Home. I I I've thought about this uh, this particular story many times when I was feeling alone and sad in the job market wilderness. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> alone and sad. Alone with my wife Heather. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Providing me great comfort and respect. It's a great story by our friend Timothy Chapman. And we discuss that with Molly. All that and more coming up. In this segment, I speak with Megan Fritz, philosopher at Utah State University. I spoke with Megan a couple weeks ago for episode number two, where Megan told us about her view of action theory and moral perfectionism and ethics. In this part of our conversation, we talked about our shared love for George McDonald's fairy tale novels for adults. George McDonald's. I encountered George McDonald when I was in high school. And um, it's one of those, when I read Fantastic, well, I actually read George McDonald when I was a kid, you know, the Back of the North Wind and, and Princess and the Goblin. Those are wonderful books, and I enjoyed them. But when I was in high school, I somehow came across Fantasties. And it was one of those experiences where I read it and started reading it at bedtime and then didn't go to sleep, you know, <laughs> because it was uh, so gripping for me and became this huge part of my understanding of the world and so on. And so whenever I see someone out there in the world who likes George McDonald's adult fantasies, I have to, I have to know about this. And I noticed on your website that you uh, cite the beech tree from, Fant- uh, from Fantasties you know, one of the most beautiful scenes of that book. So, curious about your own enjoyment of George MacDonald and Fantasties. Good. So, um, Fantasties is my favorite book uh, of all time. I I should read it at least once a year. That's fantastic. Um, I discovered it when I was working in a library, actually. I just saw this book, and I I honestly don't know why, because I saw, you know, hundreds of books a day. But I saw this book, and I I read it, and um, obviously it was was life-changing. Definitely my favorite work of his by far, although um, my nephew, who was born a year ago, the first thing I ever got him was a copy of The Back of the Northlands, mm-hmm. uh, which is also amazing. So, so why did I love Fantasties? It's so hard to answer that question because yeah. the book the book isn't even that long, but it feels like it's long, um, not because it drags on, but because so many things happen in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, I, I honestly don't think I could describe why I liked it. C.S. Lewis, it was his favorite book as well. He said when he read it, it uh, the term he used was it baptized his imagination. Mm-hmm. And I think that possibly that's the only solid thing I can say about it as well. Um, but, but I can say specific things about it. I mean, the story, one big thread running through the story is the main character, uh, Anadas, uh, which means the one who ascends in Greek. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, um, it, it is the, it's him coming to have a shadow. So initially when he arrives in fairyland, kind of against his will, he just appears there. Um, he's, he's exploring and, and, and at some point, uh, he, he develops a shadow, which, uh, is meant to be this thing that weighs him down, that makes him, um, bring harm to other people. In fact, he interacts with, 
Um, he obtains the shadow because he spent the first third of the book kind of pursuing this um, this this beautiful woman that he sees, pursuing her, uh, kind of forgetting about everything else to try and find her, and he finally finds her. Uh, she's I'm not going to spoil it for anyone who might want to read it, but she's not who he thought uh, she was. Um, so this this kind of pursuit uh, of beauty gives uh, makes him end up with a shadow that makes his interactions with other people um, dangerous and often end up bad and and this really really destroys him for the rest of the book he is just uh, completely uh, weighed down by the shadow to the point of not really wanting to 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 go on and then um, finally at the end he decides that the only thing he can do um, is, is, is entirely give himself, uh, give all of himself for uh, the sake of the, the people that he meets in, in this fairyland. Um, and the, at the end of the book, he's gotten rid of his shadow. And um, I don't really know... I'm going to be terribly bad at, at talking about this, unfortunately. But I think this, this theme of um, having this very solid, very weighty part of you that um, is injurious to people you encounter, that is um, this feeling like your very presence is something that um, that makes people's lives worse all the time. This is something that I feel a lot. And uh, this this idea that the, the main drive of your life is just to try to become the kind of person who isn't uh, isn't a danger, who's a light, not a danger to the people um, that you encounter is was, was very affecting to me. Yeah, that was what really um, hit me as well, this, the sense of innocence and seeking beauty and then the loss of that and the sense of self-loathing in a certain way, the shadows like this... Um, sense of self, right, that intrudes on other people, self-consciousness, self, self-awareness in a way that is hurtful. You know, not, not, is, I don't know if that resonates with you, but that's how... Absolutely. That's yeah, how. I mean, one of the first things that Anadas does after he gets his shadow is he, he sees a fairy girl holding this this globe, this shining ball, and it's, it's, her, it's her treasure, her prize, and she offers it to him because she wants to share the beauty of this with him, and um, he takes it and, and immediately drops it on accident, and it shatters. Yeah. That this was around him until he stopped thinking about himself at all, in, in a way, and not even like directly trying to perfect himself or something, but like where his consciousness shifted from himself to these other people and to serving them. Is it? Um, I, I'm going to read this quote. After the shadow leaves, right, he says, I learned that it is better a thousandfold for a proud man to fall and be humbled and to hold up his head in pride and fancied innocence. I learned that he, will, he that will be a hero will barely be a man. He who that will be nothing but a doer of his work is sure of his manhood. And nothing was my ideal lowered or dimmed or grown less precious. I only saw it too plainly to set myself for a moment beside it. Indeed, my ideal soon became my life, whereas formerly my life had consisted in a vain attempt to behold, if not my ideal in myself, at least myself in my ideal. 
that quote for me was just um, an encounter that was that blew me away at the moment. It became sort of the central thing I thought of every day. You know, that was. Oh, absolutely! Away. I mean, the yeah, the line that always sticks in my head, which is which is on the same page as that quote, is the, um, where he says, "You know, I, the person who set out to find my ideal, came back rejoicing just that I had lost my shadow." I love that. That's really good. Early 20th century French theologians talked about this absolute relation of oneself to the other in a way that in beholding the other truly instead of trying to project yourself onto it, the ideal, you find yourself in reality uh, in a way that is um, both perfectly transfixed and perfectly um, content. And what is meant by humility and being a creature instead of... um, being oneself the ideal. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I think that this idea, the idea of George McDonald, I mean, uh, it seems like there's a, there's a big element of kenosis there as well. Uh, this idea that to, um, to become a person you need to be requires on your part, just like an emptying of yourself, just, just a, a getting rid of it, of giving it away. Uh, and then the result being that you are refilled, um, with, 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 with the good stuff, God, basically. Yeah, that's great. McDonald was famous for his time in ni- ni- end of the 19th century Scotland. He was a Presbyterian minister and wrote these books and children's books and tons of romance books. Um, but he also was famous because he believed in a, in a sort of universalism where God's perfect will was for every human being to be saved in some way. So, and um, he lost his his ordination over it. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, I uh, George McDonald had a very, I, and you can see it, I think, in not only in his sermons, which are excellent, um, but also in his fiction. This uh, idea of the the Greek word is uh, apokatastasis. It's, it's not an easy word to say. The idea that everything is uh, in the process of being made new and. Uh, McDonald wasn't, people like to paint universalists as very overly soft, over, uh, the, as not sort of hating sin or evil enough. Um, but um, McDonald's universalism, his, uh, his belief that everything is being made new, uh, contains large aspects of, of punishment and suffering that he sees as just um, the, the suffering of, of those who have not yet, who have not yet relented to the love of God, who have not yet accepted the love of God. This is, there is a suffering there, uh, maybe for a very long time, depending on how stubborn they are, but that, that suffering is just the pain that one feels in the presence of, of the, the fire of God, called the, uh, uh, the, uh, the consuming fire, the fire that burns away uh, everything about a person, uh, that burns away the, their shadow, maybe, and to use Anadas's term, um, that, that burns away all of, all of their sort of sin-addled aspects. And he deals with this directly in the other adult fantasy novel, Lilith, where she was portrayed as, you know, a queen of evil in this story, but uh, that this character of this crow, the raven, who's 
throwing up the dirt all the time, remaking everything to new, and then you've got this sort of um, coffin chamber where people are sleeping, and yet they will one day wake. You know, he he has a really developed idea of something like purgatory for someone who is not a Catholic. You know. <laughs> Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the the outer edges of of God's love is a is a consuming fire that is very unpleasant, um, but still uh, still uh, still His love. And I mean, I think McDonald was very obviously he wrote children's books. So he, he loved children, and I think the idea of childlikeness is just the central key to everything uh, that he. That he writes because his idea is that um, the the best image of God we could have is the child's image of God. You know, we have to come to him as little children, uh, and that children understand to some extent loving punishment. They understand um, this loving kind of cleansing. The need to um, be, uh, you know. Be punished in a way, be reprimanded for things that are bad, but they don't understand it as as a as punishment for its own sake. That wouldn't appear loving to them. They wouldn't see that as as a father figure. It's always for the sake of of rectifying, of making better. Um, and so, while there is uh, an amount of suffering, it's a suffering for the sake of um, making one better. Always for McDonald's. In this session, we speak with Guy Valponi, a medical ethicist in Chicago, Illinois, about our enjoyment of the West Wing in a time of pandemic. I thought it was interesting that in the midst of all of the turmoil of current politics that we have, we've been watching West Wing, and I thought we would be alone on that, and watching an outdated, what everyone regards now as sort of a liberal fantasy of of politics. But I've talked to more and more people who are watching it. And yeah. What what led you to want to watch West Wing now? I think it was a combination of a few different pieces. One, uh, I think as we kind of reached the climax of the Trump presidency during a pandemic, being able to escape into an alternative political universe where you know the problems are going to be solved, even though the world's bipartisan in the show, you still knew that like somehow the political system was going to work, that mm-hmm. the, the leaders are moral, they just disagree ideologically, but that they're not evil per se and as we as we're kind of living in a world where it seems like not all of our politicians are you know morally upstanding human beings out for the best of all of us to have someone like you know martin sheen who's america's dad (laughs) you know make me feel good each day was a way of escaping a colder harsher reality yeah i feel like when so when the pandemic started we watched um contagion and we watched like several of these uh natural disaster world disease movies and it was sort of like surreal like oh man can you believe it like this is us now and then that sort of like horror element that was like kind of like fascinating or like exciting or almost like funny in some ways like oh my gosh we're living in contagion that's wild went away (laughs) and we 
I just want to live in a different world that yeah. doesn't look like this at all. Um, and I, yeah, I think that West Wing, it's like, it's, you know, nobody's perfect and everybody messes up. But like at the end of the day, uh, CJ Craig can tell you that it's about freedom and we want everybody to have it. And you feel like at some level that resonates with everybody. And yeah, in our reality, it doesn't feel that way at all. I wonder sometimes about whether the move towards West Wing as kind of a phenomenon right now has to do with Biden being so much like the Martin Sheen-esque character, that Jeb Bartlett is this, you know, cradle Catholic who, uh, you know, rises in the political ranks to become president. Blue blood with a heart of gold. Exactly. And so I wonder <laughs> how much of it is we were mentally preparing subconsciously for a Biden presidency of, you know, a lot of the policies Jeb Bartlett's putting forward are the policies that you know, Biden was putting forward in the 90s. And we got to have a, a pre-taste of what would be coming or maybe an idealistic hope of what might happen. <laughs> well, and it's funny because it's what's interesting to me about this too is that uh, we're, most people that I know who are watching it are watching it knowing that it is a yesteryear's liberal fantasy, which um, even if they loved it, in the early 2000s and some people loved it more um sincerely like oh this is the way things should be bush is leading a war in the middle east and if only we had elected al gore this is what it would be and it would be great i think most people now even if they're wherever they are in the political spectrum know that the west wing has some excesses that are pretty famous especially in the aaron sorkin years <laughs> where the emotion and the sentiment are very high. And we all sort of- The music. Watch, the music, <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the two, is it two cathedrals? The episodes yeah. where, so bad. where, where uh, we've got flashbacks to the presidential boyhood combined with the death of Mrs. Lenningham leading to the president yelling at God in Latin and putting out a cigarette, you know, in the, <laughs> the National Cathedral. So, so absurd. Very dramatic and very, uh, and so, so most people don't think of it as a serious vision of the way that they want things to be. And, and well, and you know, it's, I find it interesting because there's certain episodes that really map on to realities that we're still living with. So two that come to mind is there's one episode where the president's hosting a comedy dinner and they host a black comedian who makes a joke about police brutality. And the president laughs, but in the press, he had to express, or let me rephrase, CJ Craig had to express for him that he didn't even crack a smile. And it's, so it's, we're still dealing with today, 20 years on, how do presidents respond to the reality of police brutality, which actually becomes a secondary theme in a later episode where they invite uh, this now very important police officer who had done a very heroic act, but then earlier in his life, he had been accused of assaulting a young African-American male. Yeah. And so there's this interesting like touchstones that you can look back on and see, well, how did they think central central left politicians would respond to these questions of race or class or gender? And they're always playing out in unique ways. And so they're somewhat uncomfortable because 
they're showing this like fear to respond to the issues and yet here we are and the question will be we've had a president who kind of denies these issues but we now have a president who is you know a late 90s kind of apprehensive or are we going to be entering a new age where we look these issues in the face yeah that is fascinating to see like hot button things dealt with in such a different way like it you forget how quickly things change like this constant refrain of like being terrified of pro-life groups. And that just, it feels far away um, from where things are now. And even like the interpersonal elements, it's like, oh yeah, this is the nineties, you know, <laughs> like the way they talk about feminism. And like there was that episode with like lipstick feminism, <laughs> like <laughs> being okay with your sexuality. And it's like, well, it's like we've gone so far past that, that their representation of it feels like really like ham fisted, like really kind of dumb. Well, and they're also dealing with LGBT issues in a unique way that they're talking about DOMA. They're talking about hate crime legislation. Right. Um, and then they're also talking about things like marijuana legalization. I mean, there's conversations like about about firing the Surgeon General for implying that marijuana is not worse than cigarettes for your health. And totally. In, today, in today's age, we have multiple states with full legalization. and Just for funsies. Like yeah. it's, <laughs> I, I remember at that time feeling like, oh, everybody's talking about these things, but that will never happen. That will never, yeah. like, 0% possibility, talk all you want, wear your T-shirts with the leaf or whatever. And <laughs> it's just so different now. Well, and, and the fan, and that's that's also part of the fantasy aspect of it, which I the fairy tale ideal. I'm trying to decide, like, okay, so we we just said all this stuff about like stuff that's uncomfortable, stuff that's um, the way people's are are portrayed, the way the issues are portrayed has changed and feels a bit awkward. But there's something still nice and safe and good about it. Part of that is, yeah, you have this uh, lovable president. And I was just thinking this this episode we just Heather and I just recently watched where they decide to rather than replace a Supreme Court justice with one moderate person, one moderate but ineffective justice, they decide to make an even Stephen trade with the Republicans and do have the Chief Justice resign and then replace him with the with a Glenn woman, Close. Glenn Close, yes, essentially, who will be like a brilliant liberal voice, sheer liberal in a way they wouldn't have been able to get otherwise. But they'll trade off by getting this guy who's, who seems horrible and they characterize him as basically off the map terrible and someone they could never, um, they would never be happy with. But then what happens? They bring these two people together they end up being friends, actually, this liberal and this wild conservative. They come together and have this brilliant conversation. And you see that what matters is not whether you're on the right or on the left, but that you're part of the smart crowd. If you're part of the smart crowd, then we can work it all out together and get the good argument going with the lefty and the righty. And now you've got the smart people in the room uh, you're going bonkers, and here's here's how it's going. This is this is like the Institute of Politics, University of Chicago. Uh, it's not about right. It's not about left. It's about access and intelligence and prestige. So 
if we could have only a ruling class that has a proper amount of intelligence, <laughs> I feel like Plato may have said this too, then everything would be fine. That's a fairy tale for you. What do you think of that fairy tale? It's it's so funny that you mention it because that is the exact episode I was going to bring up oh, yeah. because for two reasons. One, it's echoing an age gone by with the, the death of Scalia, with the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, mm-hmm. who I'm sure to a certain degree may have been the inspiration for that. This far left woman and this far right male who would go to supposedly like hang out together and have dinners together and discuss and really respected each other, even though they disagreed about everything. And so is it a a retelling of something that just doesn't happen today? You don't hear about Sotomayor wanting to go out to dinner with Kavanaugh. And is that something that we just need to, if we all just become friends, we can still disagree. Yeah. Well, what's you guys are ruining this episode for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's such a good episode. I would actually say it's one of the best ones because it makes you feel good at the end. It's like, oh, we can move past bipartisanship by finding compromise. And yet, maybe the lived reality we've had for the past 12 years is anti compromise. That a moderate, like, um, oh gosh, who did Obama? Merrick Garland. Uh, right. A moderate like Merrick Garland couldn't even pass the Senate. And so there's this oddity of imagine a time when, well, it was so obvious the only person that was going to get by in the Senate is a moderate. And now, it's like you know, not even, that's not even a thing in 2016. Yeah, that would, that, yeah. It's scorched earth on either side in a certain way and, and um, win, 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 focus on power and so on. And so that's, that's what's appealing. I mean, what, let me analyze this. Of course, I'm being a little our summary so far of this episode has been somewhat uh, dismissive. I, I think there is a way of holding up the relation, the friendship of, of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonio Scalia as like an ideal, which I think in some ways it maybe it is. Another That's... way of saying, um, I've heard some people say, and I, I get this point too, that what was common between the Supreme Court justices, that is belonging to the most elite club in the entire country is just more important than anything else that might separate them. Uh, but on the other hand, so that's a, that's the more cynical take. Well, on that. And that, that's like <laughs> the thing that struck me from that episode wasn't the elite, like, oh, we both went to Yale or whatever. Like that wasn't the vibe. The vibe was more um, respect for skill. And it's not just like an intelligent ruling class, <laughs> well, which I think has more to do with having gone to Yale than what they're displaying in their conversation, which is like a total mastery of what they do. Like when the two, <laughs> Toby and, and Josh have to take a minute and they step outside, we like rewound this three times <laughs> where <laughs> Josh just turns to Toby and is like, I love her, I love her mind, I love her shoes. <laughs> She's just like <laughs> this like incredible woman. Um, and I think that the way, the thing that like really I loved from this episode was the way they talked about the Republican guy. He was like a boogeyman. Mm-hmm. They like listed all these things that made him a monster in their eyes. And then when they met him, it was actually like, you're brilliant. You know, like they, it was more about like seeing his appeal um, in the skills that he had and sort of the way that he mirrored the lady on their team that made him, that changed like the the feeling of that compromise like 
it did not feel the same to say, oh, you get this far right guy so that we can get our far left girl. And that, that like is a bitter pill to swallow. Like once they met him, it felt good. It felt like, look at those two up there who are going to be buddies and like duke it out for what they believe is right. Yeah. I wonder, you know, in reading, in reading kind of what you've just said, I wonder about this kind of idea of the boogeyman that he was the boogeyman. They didn't really know him. They knew, they thought they knew of him. Right. And then in meeting him, he became a lot more human and personable. And so I wonder to a certain extent, sometimes about my own kind of maybe left-leaning concern about ACB, Miss Barrett, of is, is she a boogeyman or is she actually a really kind person and all of these other wonderful characteristics and we just happen to disagree politically. This is the joy of having Facebook friends on both sides of the divide because when the hearings were happening, it was just like ricocheting news articles back and forth. Like, and then watching the, listening to and watching the hearings ourselves, it was like, wow, they're both pretty misrepresentative of these like the conversations that were happening. Um, that's, I totally thought of her with uh, Glenn Close's character because she, she came in and was like, depends on who's asking me the question and then went through several answers depending on like which imaginary person would have been in, uh, interrogating her. And I was just like, that does feel like Amy Coney Barrett. It's like, that's her blank note sheet. Like she has it all in her head and it is, extremely impressive and i think um like how how would that character have been represented by the republicans buddies what, yeah. if they had been talking about her and I, it does it rings very true and that's again <laughs> what makes this fantasy so appealing because in the end they all sort of like had some mutual respect and in our world that's not happening so this is symbolism. So we watch this, we feel safe. And, and I think we would feel, um, it would feel good to have examples of Ginsburg and Scalia and so on of politicians trying to see the humanity in each other and trying to disagree, but in ways that are generous, you know, and, and keeping each other's human dignity in mind. I think those are always good things. And then on the other hand, there's this some um, skepticism that I feel that I'm expressing that the symbolism sometimes becomes the whole story in a way that sometimes veils what the reality of their power will be for everyone else. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think there is an element of like, you have these rosy glasses on the West Wing, but there are still these moments of like the gun control stuff where it's like, we're fighting for the good, where like, look at these people who were killed and shouldn't have been. Um, come on, senators, get on board. And then there's this conversation. I hope he was a senator. I don't totally remember the context. This was an, an earlier episode. <laughs> but Josh like confronts some guy and trying to get him to vote for this thing. Um, obviously, I'm really good with politics. <laughs> um, and <laughs> the guy was like, this bill is useless. You're not doing any gun control. You're like 
saying that one gun with a specific barrel or handle or something like is going to be off the streets. But like, there's not even a point in this political process because you are not actually helping the problem. Um, And Josh is like, I don't know, you got to do small steps or whatever. And it's like, you can feel good about making the effort and being on the right side, but there is this level of like, how useful are these people being even, even on the West Wing, even in our fantasy. I think there's a, to kind of speak to that, there's also an early episode that I find kind of interesting. It's, it's always the, politi- the political process or the sausage making that gets really interesting. So in that situation, it's the, we need to get this one senator on board and he's obstinate because he's not going to throw his name behind a bill that's actually not going to be effective. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one really interesting image. The one that I also think of is when they're trying to do some type of um, decriminalization process or drug reform process, um, they pull in all of the Republican House and Senate aides uh, who work for congressmen or women who have drug crimes in their past that have been covered up or have had children or spouses or family members who got off for a drug crime because of their own power. And they more or less imply a threat to say, if you don't, if you even come out against this bill, we will leak all of this dirty laundry to the press. I love that. And you'll be, I do too. It's a great scene, but it's this image of like, oh, oh yeah. Politics can be quite dirty and God only knows what types of conversations are happening in the back room to try to get someone on board with a bill. It's pretty depressing. Even in the West Wing, there are these. Well, there's dark moments. It's the, it's the Charlie uh, almost being assassinated. Um, and so then this kind of playing out of of race questions. Um, there are these like really horrific dark moments that. I, well, and that's, that's what makes it, that's what gives it for me, the story, the character of a romance. Yeah. Even if there's a few dark episodes, they come back on the other side. Yeah. I like the idea of romance. I wonder if it's a political fantasy yeah. in a lot of ways. Um, the thing that kind of also is sticking with me having now finished up the show as we're about to enter into what will be the oldest living presidency is the idea of disease or of, you know, human frailty. Oh, yeah. So with Jeb Bartlett, it's MS, that he is literally slowly going to physically decline. And the question I think we should all be asking right now, much like we should have been doing with, and you know, many of our politicians, I think the average age is like 68 these days, you know, Pelosi's in her late 70s, early 80s, Joe Biden's in his late uh, late seventies. Uh, Trump was in his mid to late seventies. We have all of these very like lasting figures within our political history. But what does human frailty look like mm-hmm. as it's played out in the public eye? And I think actually Catholicism has a really interesting case study in that. We have John Paul II, who allowed his death to be very public or his like own decay process. Um, the other one that's interesting is Benedict's choice not to be putting that on public display. What does that mean to get to an age to say, no, now it's time for someone else, that I am, I am no longer going to be this person? What did uh, Pope 
uh, John Paul II had um, Parkinson's, right? Yes. Okay. Do you, and do you think this was a very intentional desire to show frail humanity in a public eye on, on, on John Paul II's part? I think so. I think he did want to show what does it look like to live and die nobly as a statement that like one can have a dignified death. Um, what I always wonder about is why did they choose for Jeb Bartlett to have MS? Because then ultimately he goes and they- Don't have, ruin it. Sorry, spoilers. <laughs> if you haven't watched in the past 20 years, um, I'm no longer responsible for this. But you know, he has MS and he is, his entire staff is brought in for questioning. And I wonder if they're, in a weird way, trying to look for the drama that was the impeachment of Bill Clinton and his own sexual misgivings. Interesting. And then contrasting it with something like lying or keeping a secret about one's health, or maybe even maybe an allusion to um, Kennedy's own issues of hiding his health um, during his presidency. It is an interesting move. I, I mean, on the one hand, there it's a TV show. It's like, that's like season's worth of drama to keep the plot moving forward. But it's a weird, it's a weird choice. I don't know. What do you think, Charles? He's a, he's a guy who works in good and evil categories a lot. He's a righteous guy in his own schema. Mm-hmm. They play up his Catholicism when it comes to certain things. Um, and so for him to have this moral judgment against him that he's accepted and he knows he's been wrong, but that isn't so serious like the, the vice president's sexual affair. Right. Um, where it's not going to, you know, make him seem cynical for, for keeping on going, you know. That is, it's interesting. It's like this perfect thing where it is a big scandal and he didn't handle it totally right. But also, ultimately, he is the true victim of uh his own scandal it's like nobody wants ms it's not like he did this to america it was like him trying to figure out how to deal with something that was happening to him yeah yeah different choices and um what humanity looks like in weakness and frailty and disability and age yeah well and it always gets to the fundamental questions about what are the biases that we hold towards people specifically as they age uh you know there is an an implicit ageism that I think many people in their 20s and 30s hold towards people in the latter half of their life. Um, and yet, I think that's fascinating also at the same time, because while people critiqued Trump's age, Clinton's age, um, and Biden's age, you, uh, Hillary Clinton, that is, uh, it's fascinating because young people loved Bernie Sanders, who was the oldest of all of them. Mm-hmm. And uh it's a fascinating kind of complex about who we apply our ageism towards um, and who is critiqued in that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's the establishment make, <laughs> makes you look older. <laughs> yeah. I mean, from a Catholic perspective, it's people's life has value. West Wing wise, like how would Jeb Bartlett handle the pandemic? Like let's go into fantasy world. How would CJ Craig, Josh Lyman, how are these like lovely characters going to engage had this happened in 2003? The, I have this vision in my head of the incredible restaurant lobbyists who were like just independent restaurant owners that figured out how to like 
appeal to Congress to please God save us. Some of them would end up in the White House with their masks or whatever, and they would plead their case in a way that like Josh and Toby heard, you know, and like they weren't worried about the restaurants. And then suddenly they like saw the vision um, and Jed would figure out a way to get money to the people who needed it. This feels like a very food writer kind of angle on this. Uh, for it's sure. my, yeah. my whole angle. <laughs> well, and I kind of wonder, so Jeb is a PhD in economics, and I wonder if he would have been willing to use the Defense Act and commanded um, corporations to start producing more PPE. Would he have been Interesting. more involved? Would he have been much more demanding and maybe the other question is would he have been how would he have dealt with his own economic biases while balancing the pandemic yeah uh, and i think he would not he would be shouting in the, in the oval office and toby pounding his there, fist he'd be shouting <laughs> about this and that and toby would be like all that matters is protecting human lives we've got <laughs> to we've got to shut down the country and stop this pandemic you know, he would be Toby, you know, he'd be righteous about it <laughs> and we would love him. And then, and then Josh would be like, there's political ramifications here. You yeah. shut down the entire economy. We won't have a dem democratic president for two election cycles. <laughs> and yeah. Then they'd and, get some reports from the one smart Republican who they knew who <laughs> they'd write off the numbers at first and then say, oh no, you have a point. If you stay home, then, you know, uh, domestic abuse will increase and they'll like, make arrangements on that end as well well and that's and then, another and then the president would yeah go into defense act and save the save the country i think yeah, yeah. find that golden <laughs> you know? thread but what is your okay what is your favorite episode you know there's a really great one about the death penalty and it has to do with jeb bartlett struggling to and it, it, it has layers to it so it starts at this um it starts with a court case about staying a federal execution and the courts rule that the execution can go forward, which is super interesting and applicable right now, because this literally just happened a day ago that the Supreme court ruled that a federal execution could go forward. Yeah. But setting that aside, uh, the people trying to, uh, to protect the defendant's life, uh, reach out to these people who know the, the staff of the white house. So, um, at the local, at to, uh, Toby Ziegler's um, local synagogue, the rabbi uh, delivers um, a speech about it uh, during the service. And so it was kind of like secretly lobbying that the right thing to do for a Jewish person is to not take life. Um, and then it moves from that level up to um, higher levels until it finally reaches the president who undergoes his own kind of Catholic dialogue kind of internally and externally because they bring in a priest about should he stay the execution and is that something he can or shouldn't do mm -hmm. do you think he did the right thing i don't know it's it's an interesting situation um it's i imagine it's quite difficult to be a catholic in political life especially mm -hmm. one who has faith-based values that don't necessarily correlate to the powers that you have. What does it mean to protect the law of the lands or enforce the law of the lands if you don't necessarily agree with them? Yeah, but that is a fun moment where 
you like sort of watch him choose his position as the president. He he acts out of that role that he has. Yeah. He acts and, out of the role of enforcer of the law and not out of himself as holding the office. Mm-hmm. That would be your favorite one. <laughs> yeah, well, that's one of them. Um, I like how ridiculous two cathedrals is. I find it hilarious. Uh, uh, I couldn't stand it. We're on, I don't even know what the season is now, but we just did that uh, Supreme Court episode yeah, i love that episode that's probably my favorite episode of the whole okay because we i that that was my first thought i yeah, just that is my favorite except i didn't want to name it since we already talked about it yeah but it's so it's so beautifully constructed um and they managed to have this whole like unfolding of their decision and getting to know these personalities within one episode which i feel like is hard to do charles what's I- your favorite but one of my favorites that I want to talk about is 20 Hours in America, which is when Toby and Josh and Donna get left behind from a campaign event. In Indiana. In Indiana. <laughs> and I love it because, you know, I, I, I research punishment and uh, have a fascination with banning as a kind of punishment or loss of place, you know, <laughs> and uh, being exiled or cast out into the wilderness in some way is a, a not only a, a topic of research, but also, I think, a very basic fear of mine. But uh, <laughs> the, uh, so I'm always attracted to these themes. I'm, and I'm actually teaching a class on this next semester called Hellscapes. So I... I they get left behind and they are in the middle of nowhere. They have a hard time getting from, they're trying to catch up and get back on the, the plane, get back to the other folks, get on the plane and they just keep getting stuck. And this is, you know, planes, trains and automobiles style frustration where they can't, they keep getting, uh, but along the way they're getting all these lessons, right? So fighting with each other the whole time and getting very grumpy. And Donna's losing patience with them. Uh, Toby Poor and Donna. Josh. Poor Donna. <laughs> and they're like, they're in purgatory, basically. They're getting their, their, stupid, their stupid political stuff out of the way. And once they get to this argument, uh, this sort of bitter argument about whether they should be campaigning with negative ads or not, or something like this. Um, they have this argument throughout this whole thing, and they finally, Donna yells at them, and uh, they get, they feel ashamed, you know? So they sort of go woebegone to the bar, and they sit sort of across, down the way from each other. And then, at that moment, one of the locals who have been trying to tell them stuff this whole time, and they've been ignoring them, strikes up a conversation with Toby, starts talking about how hard it is to pay college tuition and Toby hears them and they, they sort of get a new focus. Josh and Toby come together and they, they understand their purpose again. They are saved by this experience and they know they want to go and transform a public policy to where someone can have a tax write-off to help pay for college education. And this all culminates and when they finally land in DC, they get out of the limo early so they can walk in and look at the Capitol together in sort of a symbolic return to the center with new purpose, exile back to the Holy of Holies (laughs) with a new telos purged from the dross. So you're calling Indiana hell, basically. It's a hellscape. Yes, without (laughs) any hesitation, yes. 
<laughs> As for those who are unaware, I lived and work in Indiana. It is not a hellscape. <laughs> Wonderful people live there. <laughs> I went to high school in Indiana, and uh, it was a uniquely terrible experience, but it had more to do with the high school than the Yeah, that sounds personal. Yeah. And Heather, what's your favorite episode? I'm thinking more of like moments, you know? Like, I love when Toby gets in people's faces. Like, I love when he asked Jed um, if his dad hit him. That was, like, mind-blowing to me. Let's talk about favorite characters. That's more fun. Toby. Is Toby your favorite? I mean, I think so, yeah. <laughs> he has the best moments. He has those, like... I love him. <laughs> yeah, his little, his little yas are very good. Donna's yep. just the best. I like CJ. I really yeah. do. CJ's great. She's a strong woman. She has principles. Watching CJ kick ass is like... It's pure pleasure. It is amazing. There's this really silly moment that I'm just going to laugh at, but uh, CJ Craig has to deal with uh, cartographers for social justice. <laughs> I don't know I why that. that one sticks out to me. It's but so it's like good. They it's so show good. her the Peter's projection map and her mind is blown and then they flip it upside down. And she's just like, oh. <laughs> That's a good one. I also love the uh, the CJ CJ with birds, you know, with the turkeys, uh, with no. the <laughs> goat. So Doesn't she have a goat in her office at some point? And then uh, it's the amnesty or no, uh, the heifer. The heifer. Yes. This place I thought a heifer. heifer. Isn't a heifer a cow? <laughs> <laughs> so funny. When uh, when President Bartlett says he can't pardon the the turkey, but he can conscript him in the military service. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, and the kid believes him, and like, he's really? like, oh, what's wrong with American education? <laughs> well, uh, this has been very enlightening. It's so long. I'm sorry, you're going to have to cut no, it down. No, no, yeah, I will. I'll cut it down a lot. But this was fun, though. It was fun. Yeah. Yeah, just for it's sake. A Home for a Turtle by Timothy Chapman. Turtle is looking for his home. Where can he live? Bird lives in a nest high in a tree, but where can Turtle live? Beaver lives in a beaver lodge, but where can Turtle live? Spider spins a spider web, but where can Turtle live? Bat lives in a dark cave, but where can Turtle live? Penguin lives in cold snow, but where can Turtle live? Fox lives in a den on the ground, but where can Turtle live? Fish lives in the cool water, but where can Turtle live? Bee lives in a hive with her family, but where can Turtle live? Where can Turtle live? Snail knows. Turtle carries his home on his back. Snail knows. Snail knows. <laughs> what did you think? Did you like that story? Yeah, it's really good. What do you think it means? I don't know. Like, it's like, where can Turtle live? And he finds his home on his back. The snail tells him. Yeah. <laughs> what about like, um, like a meaning that's beyond just like the, the fact that the turtle has a shell? Like, what does it mean like to have a, your own home on your back? I mean, you're, you're not dependent on, like, other things. You have your home yourself, and you carry it around. 
and you don't have to build it or to like yeah like to build it or to find it or to be in a cer- certain place to be there it's always with you yeah good is there anything that makes you feel like that mm, maybe feelings and yeah feelings like love or like I don't know. Is there anything you do that makes you feel like that? Like you just start good on your own? Mm, maybe dancing. Yeah? What's what's it like to dance? How does that feel? Feels kind of like, even if I totally suck at it, I really enjoy it. And it's like more, it's fun for me. And I don't know. Yeah. So it's like, it's all you need. It's right there. Yeah. That's great. That's great. What about reading? Yeah, reading, yeah. I mean, I reading's like, I read and I don't really think about what's happening. I mean, like, I do, I think about what's happening in the book and I find myself just kind of in the book, like, I'm the character, I'm that person. Mm-hmm. Um, around me, I am in that environment. I find myself, like, not paying attention to my surroundings or like, I don't, it's hard to explain. No, I totally understand. Yeah. It feels like you're on your own. And suddenly it's 1030 and my mom's yelling at me to go to bed. So (laughs) yeah, Yeah. that'll happen. You get carried away into the the other, into yourself, right? Yeah. Into your own mind. Yeah. Yeah. Through the book. That's good. Well, thank you, Molly. That was great. Okay. This is a particular good podcast. Particular good, not particularly good. <laughs> you can't say it every time. It's a name, not a claim.